Father, I feel acutely the need for your spirit um, to fill up what is lacking, and there is so much lacking in me. Would you overshadow me and overshadow this congregation so that I may speak the words of life that are empowered by your spirit and so that we all may, by your spirit's power, have our ears open to receive your word and to let it take root and bear fruit in our lives. And so we commend ourselves this morning to your love and care. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. Oh, that was good. Go ahead and, and pull out a Bible. There are a few Bibles there in front of you. And turn to the first two chapters of the book of Acts, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. That's where we'll be this morning. We'll be kind of covering a little bit of ground more than what was read to us this morning. Uh, because I do want to get the whole picture here. And I think there's something for us that, um, that we need to hear. This is, of course, as I mean, we're wearing new colors. Many of you are wearing red. Well done. This is Pentecost Sunday. This is the birthday of the church, as many will say. But this is kind of the climax of the salvific work of Jesus. And it's not just that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but he was also raised by God the new life. And it doesn't end there. He was also enthroned by God at the ascension to his right hand. He's now king over heaven and earth. And now as king, and from the control center of the universe, he sends his power. He sends his connection to him and to his rule to us as the church. And now what are we commissioned to do? To go out declaring that good news. So we, in many regards, are the culminating act of God's salvation on earth. We extend it by word and deed in this world. And so Pentecost is no small thing. This is a principal feast and this is the last of the great 50 days of Easter. So feast up today because tomorrow, whew, <laughs> fasting. No. Well, what we're going to look at this morning is the miracle of Pentecost. And in particular, this miracle is that the risen and ascended King Jesus, through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, empowers a waiting community, a waiting community to become, to be transformed into a witnessing community. Just look there at the beginning uh, of the first chapter of Acts, verse 4. Luke recounts this, And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but what? But to wait for the promise of the Father, to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Before we look at the characteristics of this waiting community, who were they? Sometimes we can read this and not take into account what has happened in the last two months for these folks. Just imagine for a moment that you're in their shoes. And for the last two months, you've been through this physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual roller coaster. Just think, within the last two months, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and you're like, this really is the Messiah. He really is enacting the kingdom of God. And then days later, you walk into Jerusalem with him to the shouts of the city, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the son of David. The city's receiving him as her king, her long-awaited king. You couldn't be higher. Cloud nine, whatever, however you want to imagine that, the disciples are riding high. And then just in a matter of, of a few short days, betrayal takes place. Judas betrays Jesus in the garden, and everything turns. 
What's happening? Jesus, how could you let this happen? Peter wants to go. He goes and sits outside of the interrogation. And then the unthinkable happens for him. He betrays his Lord. And then even more than that, the one whom they thought was the Messiah, Israel's king, is beaten and spit upon, crucified, and dead. And you can imagine They've gone from the high of seeing him raise Lazarus and being received as the king to now being dead and in a grave. And their hope and despair are these contrasting elements here. Of feelings of abandonment and depression. They had hung all their hopes on this man and he's gone. But then they hear this rumor from the ladies, the Marys that were there as John describes them. Jesus was alive from the dead. They spoke with How could this be? And of course, Jesus appears to them in the upper room there as John recounts at the end of his gospel. And now, the, now you're going back up again. How, how, I don't know if many of us could handle this kind of swing. But then you can imagine the confusion. What's going on? This is not what we ever imagined would take place. And so in just a matter of a few months, these folks have experienced this intense range of emotions from joy and shame and doubt, hope and fear and confusion to relief and even abandonment, maybe even refeeling senses of abandonment with the ascension. Where are you going? I think we're familiar with this sort of people because so often we're that sort of people. Our lives are marked by roller coasters experiences of ups and downs, of highs and lows, of feelings of God being present with us and working powerfully, and then the next moment you feel like you've been abandoned. So it's important for us to pay attention to Jesus' command here to the disciples to wait, and particularly to Luke's description of this waiting community. And he describes this waiting community beginning in verse 4 all the way through the first verse of chapter 2. But why wait? Why wait? Jesus, Jesus knows the disciples need a little bit of time, 10 days. That's all the sabbatical you need. 10 days to process what's happened, maybe to heal a bit, maybe to confess sin like Peter does. They need time to regroup before they're sent out on mission. Waiting, Jesus also knows, is the posture of preparation. It's the posture of expectation for receiving and experiencing the presence of God. In the waiting, this waiting is not passive, it's active. It's an active posturing of oneself, preparing for the presence of God, and a preparation that is expectant for God to show up. Think of the waiting Moses did in Exodus 24, Right after the, the covenant ceremony had been completed, he goes up on Mount Sinai. But before he enters the presence of God in the cloud, Moses waits for six days. No doubt a time of preparation and expectancy to enter into a focused experience of God's presence in the cloud of glory and thunder and fire on top of the mountain. So this waiting community that Luke describes here in Acts 1 has four characteristics that are instructive for us. Look there at verse 4 again and verse 12. First, this waiting community is submitted to Jesus. He commands them to wait. Then verse 12, what do they do? They return to Jerusalem and they wait. They gather, they gather together in the room and they're waiting. 
expectant, confused, but waiting. You see, Jesus is king over all things. The ascension has happened. He's been enthroned over heaven and earth. Therefore, the church, the gathered waiting community, is commanded to submit. Not just in a little spiritual box over here, but in all things because he sits enthroned over all things. But not only that, this gathered, this waiting community is a gathered community. This is the second characteristic. Look at there at verses 12 and 13 of Acts 1 and then in verse 1 of chapter 2. Again, Luke says, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. A waiting community is a gathered community. It comes together. And a gathering community, one, it resists the temptation to isolate. What do we want to do when we've gone through all of those emotions the last two months? What's the temptation? It's just to peel away. Break away from, from the gathered community. I need time to process. I need to get alone. I don't know what I'm thinking. Maybe I betrayed Jesus, and I don't want to be seen by anyone, for I'm fearful of people finding me out or fearful of their judgmental gaze. And so we isolate ourselves, and we become subject to greater temptation and attack from the enemy. But not only that, the gathering community challenges the temptation to rely on our own strength. Some of us treat the church as a mechanic shop. You know, no need to come when I'm doing well, when life's okay, but when, when things aren't going so well, it's time to bring the car into the shop, get fixed up. But most of the time, it's all right. I'll just, do, I'll just fill up with gas on my own and do my own thing, and no need for that. But God tells us, and through Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, what? That he assembles a body, and each person is uniquely equipped by God. To provide what is lacking, what is needed, and the other persons in the congregation. Their ears, their tongues, their eyes, all these things, all these folks, unique, each one of you are uniquely gifted. But you're also uniquely limited, uniquely deficient in a creaturely way. You need others. You need those whom God brings around you in the community, in this gathered community. And so this waiting community is submitted to King Jesus, and they're gathering together. And then what do they do when they're gathered together? They devote themselves to prayer. We heard it there in verse 14. Prayer is the way we as individuals and as a community turn our joy over to God in praise, turn our gratitude over to him in thanksgiving, and turn our sorrow, our pain, our anxieties, our depressions, our suffering our guilt, our shame, our fear, you name it over to him in petition. Help me. Trusting that he is the one who brings restoration and healing. But they were not only devoted to prayer, they were also, and this is the fourth characteristic, they're also devoted to searching the scriptures. And this is an implication. Of course, when we come to the end of chapter 2, we get a fuller description of what the, the waiting community is doing. They're engaging in the apostles' teaching the breaking of bread. But that doesn't happen before the Spirit comes. But here, the implication is they're searching the Scriptures. Look at verse, verses 15 and 16. In those days, 
Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. What are they doing? Remember, they've been on this roller coaster ride. Everything they thought they knew about the scriptures was, in many ways, wrong. All their expectations around the Messiah had been flipped on their heads. Jesus has been, he's, he was killed. He's been raised to new life. He's ascended. I thought the kingdom was supposed to come in, and you don't get the privilege of knowing the timing. Well, what do they do? They devote themselves to prayer, and then they search the scriptures to make sense of their experience, to gain guidance. They were seeking to make sense of their experience and the circumstances through God's eyes so they could find direction for the future. This waiting community submitted to King Jesus, gathering together, not forsaking the fellowship, devoted to prayer and to the searching of the scriptures. And we can add now that we're on this side, the spirit is among us now, the breaking of bread, the Eucharist, word and sacrament. You see, this sort of waiting cultivates healing, restoration, wisdom and direction, as well as a posture of preparation and expectancy for the presence of God to be made manifest through the means of grace that he gives his church the word and sacrament, and our communal bonds with one another. So in the midst of the waiting community, prepared and expectant, what happens? Shocker, God shows up. The spirit falls down. He's poured out from on high. Uh, Folks, when Jesus ascends to heaven, he ascends in a human body that's been restored. A part of this earth is now in heaven. Remember, the whole goal is for heaven and earth to merge together. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as is in heaven. And what does Jesus do? He sends the spirit of heaven, of God, to come on earth to be among us and to indwell us. We now have access. His presence can now be manifest among us. So what does God show up to do? Two things, I think, that come out of the images here. He shows up to heal, and we could add there restore, and he shows up to empower. We see this chiefly in the images of wind and fire. Wind, that's the power of God to bring about new life. Think back, Genesis 1, chapter 2, or chapter 1, verse 2. You have the earth. It's just portrayed there, covered in darkness and uncontrolled and chaotic waters. It's such a place that it's unproductive and an uninhabited environment. And then we hear the word that the Spirit of God, the breath, the wind of God, is brooding, hovering over it like a, like a mother, a nurturing mother bird hovers over her young. And out of that activity of the Spirit of God, life and light emerge. Genesis 2, 7 God gets done forming this earthbound creature, Adam. And what does he do? He breathes breath, wind, spirit into him, and he becomes a living creature. In the midst of the flood, Genesis 8, 
At the climax of it, the earth is again covered in chaotic waters. And what happens? God sends a strong wind. And then the waters begin to recede and life reemerges on earth. Exodus 14, folks, pay attention to the scriptures. The people of Israel are up against the Red Sea, pinned by the, the pursuing Egyptian army. What does God do? He sends a strong east wind and it splits the water and dries the land out. And the people are baptized as they walk through. No longer slaves, but people prepared to become the priests of God. New life. No longer stuck in the death of slavery, but now opened up to freedom in Christ. So wind is no insignificant symbol here. It is the power of God to bring new life, to do a new thing, to heal a sick world, to forgive those who have sinned against God and neighbor, to reconcile those who are alienated from God and neighbor, and ultimately to transform that which was dead into life and vitality, flourishing. But then there's also fire. Fire, that's the powerful presence of God that establishes a new kingdom. Forging it in its all-consuming fire, a people, a new people, a polis, a new Jerusalem, a new culture forged in the midst of cultures, the cultures of this broken world. Fire, that's associated with the covenant. This is a new people equipped now, not with tablets of stone, but by the Spirit who removes our stony hearts and awakens life inside of us, the very life of God, enabling us now to have freedom from the flesh, the world, and the devil. God shows up in the midst of the waiting community to heal the wounds of this fallen world, this fallen, broken world. He does it in big ways and in small ways. The biggest one that's signaled here is that it's the reversal of Babel. The wounds of human rebellion after the flood against God is reversed in this act, this Pentecostal act of the Spirit causing singular hearing and singular speech, though there's a multiplicity of languages. Bringing together one people, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. The healing, restoration, and empowerment, the new life of God's kingdom that we receive from the Holy Spirit enables us also then to become a witnessing community. We need to be both a waiting community, prepared and expectant for the presence of God, but then also a witnessing community. This is what we see there in chapter 2, verses 4 through 36. And particularly we see here a sign of the kingdom. There in chapter 2, verse 4, this is, I won't read it, but this is the tongues, the languages, this sign, this fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. And here the waiting community becomes itself a sign of the coming kingdom of God, an advanced sign of it. And it produces now signs of the kingdom that bear witness to the presence of a new reality, a new kingdom in the midst of the old, broken, and fallen one. Something new is happening here. To be a sign of the kingdom requires us to be a people that embody that new life that we received from the Spirit. 
And we must manifest this coming life of God's kingdom now in the presence, in the present, in the midst of this broken world, so that we can testify to that there's a different option. You don't have to, you don't have to remain enslaved. And of course, this manifesting of God's kingdom in, our, in us requires that waiting bit. Submission to Jesus, gathering, devoting ourselves to prayer, to word and sacrament. What are these signs of God's coming to the kingdom? Of course, here it's tongues and prophecy, the fulfillment of Joel 2, but it's also the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Doesn't our world need that manifested? Signs of the coming kingdom also are forgiveness and reconciliation. Don't forget that in the Lord's Prayer, it's a prayer of your kingdom come on earth as is in heaven. And one of the chief things that we are to do are we are to forgive those who trespass against us, just as God has forgiven us our trespasses. There are signs, there are economic signs. What we do with our money ought to be a sign of a different reality governing our life. Hospitality, what we do with our homes, who we associate with, ought to be a sign of a different reality. Peace and acts of mercy and justice. And we could go on and on. We are to embody the Spirit's life, the new life of the kingdom in our lives and produce these signs. However, the signs of the kingdom are insufficient. They're insufficient to accomplish the mission that King Jesus commissioned us to do as his church in Acts 1, verse 8. This is why the people that saw this initial sign asked, what the world is going on? What does this mean? Such signs of God's coming kingdom amid the brokenness of this present fallen world, they call forth, they require, they demand explanatory words. We have to give an explanation for this new life. This is why Peter gets up, and from verses 13 or verses 14 through 36, he gives the meaning of these signs. He explains the sign by announcing the good news of the risen and ascended King Jesus. And it's not incidental then that this is why Peter in, in 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you. Be ready to explain the transformation that has taken place and is taking place in your life. So where do these signs then appear? everywhere. The waiting community scatters to become the witnessing community. We can't just always stay huddled together. We don't always stay here in this building. We have to scatter to all the different spheres of our world, to our homes and neighborhoods, to our vocations and workplaces, to our city and our civic involvement. We scatter out from here and we take with us 
the manifesting spirit of the coming kingdom that is bringing about new life in us. And each part of those areas of our lives must be transformed to become arenas of the kingdom of God opening up. Right? This is the embassy of the new Jerusalem. Outside of us is a foreign territory. We go out as citizens of this kingdom, empowered by the spirit of the kingdom, to live that life out among all these folks so that we can bear witness to the good news. In the end, as a church, we need both. We need this Pentecostal, if I can use that word, without people getting huffy or puffy or whatever. If I can use, we need a Pentecostal pattern here of waiting, receiving, and then witnessing, of gathering and scattering. We need that because you know what? To go back out into the world and to bear witness to the kingdom, it's exhausting. It's hard. It's emotionally draining. We need to come back and to be refilled and renewed by the Spirit of God and by the community of God here in the gathered waiting community, as we show up, and we should show up with expectation that God acts. The early church put so much weight on three things. Baptism, where God acts and displays his grace to adopt. The Eucharist, where God shows up in his presence, and acts of discipline. That was their, that was their way to sanctification. Simple, yet rigorous. But they did all those with expectation that God acted in all of them to restore and renew and bring about that new life of the coming kingdom. So how can you enter into this waiting community and this witnessing community more fully? Well, I think you do those things that we talked about. You submit to King Jesus. Maybe ask yourself, are there areas of your life that you still need to bring under Jesus' loving and gentle reign? Is there an area you still want to hold back for yourself? Really pray and ask God, is there something in my life that I've not relinquished over to you? And then don't forsake the gathering of ourselves together with fellow citizens of God's kingdom, chiefly in worship, but then also outside of worship. We need, we need the presence of God in the lives of others in this world. And don't forsake prayer. Don't forsake the searching of the scriptures, primarily in the gathered community, but also in your homes. And then how might we more fully live into this all-of-life vision of God's kingdom? Christ Church, just live your life transformed. Oh, it sounds so easy to say. It's so difficult to do. You don't have to become a priest you are a priest in God's kingdom, so bear the life of the kingdom in how you live with others, how you live with your family, how you interact with your neighbors and your co-workers. Produce the signs of the kingdom and then be prepared. You don't have to be a theologian to give an explanation. It could be as simple as Jesus has done this. What's happened? What's happened? I've been reading a graphic novel to Matthias. He might be a little too young for this. But I've, I've enjoyed the novel. It's about a saint, Placidus. He was a Roman general who converted to Christianity and was martyred with his family. 
But you know what? His life was such a radical transformation that his men, when they've discovered him after he has lost for a while, they wanted to know what happened to you. What happened? He encountered Jesus. He was filled with the Spirit at baptism, and he produced signs of the kingdom. And he gave explanation. Christ Church, this Pentecost, let us be encouraged. Let us expectantly come to the Lord's table to receive from him the grace of the kingdom of God, so that we, by his Spirit, might bear witness to this wonderful, loving, beautiful kingdom Right now in Winston-Salem, right now, this day, and tomorrow and every day, for the glory of God and for the sake of those who do not yet know him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.